We've seen the pictures, the videos, the news reports, and it wasn't pretty. But do we really understand what went on at Standing Rock? That's the question we're asking today, and we have just the man to put it into perspective for all of us. Hello again, everyone. This is Len Vermillion coming to you from the Political Sidetrack podcast, and I'm joined once again by Joe Markman, or shall I say, at J.H. Markman, since you seem to have found a lot of activity on Twitter recently, Joe. Hashtag bring back Joe. <laughs> so in case you missed it, Joe reported on the NAEP Summit recently and on a panel that had a fair amount of, uh, I guess I'll say, criticism for the industry's ex- efforts to present a better public image, uh, especially in the wake of the Dakota Access Pipeline standoff in North Dakota, and he got quite a response. Actually, a lot of the response was that people agreed that the uh, industry is losing the PR war uh, against a very organized um, environmental movement. Right. And as you heard in our last episode, um, methane and messaging, we, we talked about that with API. And um, I, th- I think the industry is a little bit more organized. I, obviously, this campaign that they have, I think, can do wonders. It's a very good um campaign, but I digress. Uh, We are here to talk today about what happened in Standing Rock with the Dakota Access Pipeline. And on this episode, we want to really dive into what happened. Um, As I mentioned in our beginning here, we've all seen what went on there on TV, in news reports, but we never really had an insider point of view for somebody who's been through these types of cases in the past, and that's who we have here today, and we're going to talk to them. It's certainly an issue that touches the nerves with uh, for people, and with good reason. There are two sides to every story, and sometimes, well, okay, most of the time, people tend to only hear their sides. And with that, we have an expert, an attorney, in Native American tribal law that we talked to on the phone earlier, and that's Troy, Troy Ide. He's a former U.S. attorney who now practices with Greenberg Trial Rig in Denver, uh, Troy and, and the, the firm were not directly involved with Staple, but he's very familiar with, with the parties involved from both sides, and he'll mention that. And he's served as chief counsel in similar high-profile pipeline cases, most notably the Ruby Pipeline. He speaks a lot about the Dapple case, and as well, you can see him in a new documentary on PBS titled Beyond Standing Rock, and we'll give a little a little promo for that PBS documentary, but I haven't seen it yet, but from what I've seen in the trailer, it looks pretty balanced and very good. Yeah, and my understanding is that the documentary is a very balanced uh, view of Standing Rock. It does not, it gets away from the anger and and the emotion that's been really dominating that story. Right, so yeah, if you have the opportunity to view it, I would uh, definitely check that out. But in the meantime, we're going to talk to Troy here and give our industry a a different perspective of what really happened there. So with that, let's play the, the interview that Joe and I did with Troy I of Greenberg Trowering. We're here with Troy Ide of Greenberg Trowrig Rig in Denver, Colorado, and we're talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline. Troy, thanks for being with us today on the political side. Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. I'm glad to have you. So it seems there are two narratives that have emerged from Dakota Access and the standoff there. Um, it seems like one is the oil and gas industry is trampling on sacred Native American grounds. From the other side, the, 
thinking the environmental extremists have hijacked uh, a minor issue to further their agenda. I mean, why don't you give us in your words what really is going had gone on there, and um, just tell us your side of what you think the story is. Well, it was interesting in terms of a, a, a coincidence, if you will, the end of a presidential administration, which resulted, as you know, in a fairly dramatic change so far, the near completion of a pipeline project. I mean, bear in mind that Dakota Access is more than 95% done and was largely completed when these, these events began to transpire last summer. And then, then you know, finally, just the, the the sweeping movement, if you will, through through Native America, uh, that was fueled by President Obama's emphasis on tribal consultation. Tribal consultation is the government-to-government relationship between tribes and the federal government. Uh, it flows from the historic relationship that tribes have as sovereigns, recognized as such in the Constitution. But President Obama, more than any other president, really gave some life to that to that concept of consultation. I think on energy projects prior to President Obama, the idea was that you would uh, provide notice of an off-reservation project if you were a project proponent, and you would wait for the response, and you would gather the comments and create your administrative record, and you were basically done. But what President Obama has done as a legacy is basically add a, a substantive proponent to the procedure. Uh, he, he, he scrutinized the consultation, and he made the guidelines much more substantive, the degree to which agencies not just provide information but actually address tribes' concerns and begin to, to meet and talk with them and, and, and get into some of the specific issues, the frequency with which the proponents of projects interact with tribes. That, that, that all has been something that the statutes don't necessarily recognize, but that President Obama felt was part of, of what the relationship should be. And so that's really transformed a lot of things. You had this, this, this uh, uh, coalescence of several different things happening at the same time, and the result was a really explosive situation that I think is going to fundamentally change how a lot of pipeline projects are designed and built. Right. And um, when you say that it's uh, sort of a when you're talking about consultation, maybe you can explain that a little bit more sure. to people. What that means. Sure. So tribes predate the U.S. Constitution. They're mentioned in the Constitution. And what that means is that they are recognized as sovereign or self-governing. They're not, they're not fully independent as nations are, of course, but within uh, a phrase that we call domestic dependent sovereignty, that's what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. Uh, what it means is that tribes are part of the United States, but they have essential powers of self-government that have never been divested or limited. And that means that when there is a federal project or undertaking, tribes have the right to be consulted about that. The, the statutes such as the National Environmental Policy Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, and so on that, that energy companies routinely deal with uh, envision a process for how you solicit comments from stakeholders when you're going to do a project. But where tribes are different is that they're not just stakeholders, they're governments. And, and the newer guidelines under the Obama administration really put a lot of teeth to the point that in these guidelines now that if an agency doesn't follow the processes for consultation, how it's con conducted with a tribe, the tribes actually can have standing to sue to enforce that in court. And that's what you've seen in a lot of the litigation related to Dakota Access Pipeline. Will that uh, process stand now that, you know, we have a new administration? Do you think that's something that would be changed or is it lasting? 
Well, this is really interesting because, of course, presidents can alter other presidents' executive orders and guidelines and so on, as you know. But, but every president since Richard Nixon who first recognized in modern times this consultation uh, right as, as part of a president's obligation and part of the federal government's obligation. I mean, literally every single president has had a set of guidelines for how consultation is conducted. They have always moved forward or they've remained static. They've never gone backwards since 1970 when Richard Nixon first did this in the modern era. And so it would be pretty unusual if President Trump were to try to scale back tribal consultation. The other thing that's happened is that even if the president does do that, and he might, of course, yeah, right. uh, the courts are beginning to recognize the existing consultation guidelines within agencies as providing causes of action or, or hooks where a plaintiff can go and sue. And to change those policies would be a pretty Herculean undertaking. It can certainly be done, but President Obama literally spent from his first year in office until his very last month in office changing how consultation is done at the agency level. So it, it would be a hard hard uh, transition, I think, for any president, but especially where tribes are now seeing rights fleshed out in a way that, that if they were to be taken away, I think you'd have tremendous backlash. And bear in mind that there are 568 federally recognized tribes. Uh, they're in all parts of the country, primarily in the West, but they do touch a lot of different congressional districts. So despite the relatively small size of the native population, there's tremendous political power on the tribal side. Right. So they'd actually be taking this issue beyond pipelines if they were, if the Trump administration were to try to do that. Absolutely. It, it applies to all the different things the federal government right. does that affect tribes, and you can imagine that's the whole gamut. Right. Okay. Now, what happened with the Army Corps of Engineers in in this case? Because the Army Corps was arguing that it had made sufficient um, efforts to to speak with the Native Americans, to speak with the Sioux tribe. So this is a great question, and this is this is the hub of the of the dispute, if you will. So bear in mind this pipeline is located almost entirely on private land. So you only have federal jurisdiction with respect to about 3% of the project. Back in July, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, began to address that 3%. It is primarily a water crossing, and now it is entirely a water crossing underneath the Missouri River at a place called Lake Oahe. And back in July, the Army Corps released an environmental assessment that's required under uh, Section 408 of the Rivers and Harbors Act, and it was to provide a permit to allow the promoters of Dakota Access to be able to cross underneath this lake. And that was the action that became the flashpoint ultimately for the protests, because the Army Corps issued that 408 permit back in July. They did it based on an EA, not a more substantive environmental impact statement or EIS. And at the same time, though, that the Army Corps didn't entirely finish the issue. They did the permit, but there was still a right-of-way to consider because it was federal land underneath this, this reservoir, and it's a separate statute called the Mineral Leasing Act. And so what happened was that during the course of the litigation, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe had been concerned, along with other tribes in, in the region, that the proposed pipeline route had shifted. Initially, the route was going to cross the Missouri River about 10 miles north of Bismarck. And what happened was, as a result of concerns that were raised by residents in that area, and also some environmental concerns, I should point out, with the water crossings up there, 
that, that, that were adjacent to the river. Uh, it ended up that the pipeline proponents uh, proposed moving and shifting the routes to within about half a mile of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. And that's ultimately what the Army Corps considered, and that's where the rights-of-way applications and the permit applications were based. That, that shift in the, in the pipeline route was really the catalyst, along with the federal jurisdiction and the approval of those two, those two items that, that triggered all this. We've heard uh, here and there from different people in the industry and so forth that, and I think, Joe, you, you were covering somebody at the NAEP Summit recently, right, about this that had, was commenting on, DAPL has pretty much not helped the cause for the industry at this point in terms of that, that public outreach. Um, do you have any comments on that? It's a perception. Well, yeah. you know, I, I was at the Southern Gas Association last week in Tampa at the annual convention, and... You know, the, 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 the statement that we, we discussed, which I think is applicable, is that no energy company would want to have the images that we saw on the Internet or on television uh, that, that doesn't help or, or, or promote anything positive, regardless of whether you think the images are completely fair or, un, or, or unbiased. Um, what, what happened was that after the Army Corps issued its permits, you, you had, of course, during this entire time, that the, that the earth-moving activities to build the pipeline were, were well underway. As I mentioned, the project was already 95% completed. And so you began to see with the, the route that had shifted, you saw on private lands uh, a lot of activity going on, and that's where the initial clashes with the protesters occurred. You had, during that time, camps that were established. We all saw that. And more than 200 tribes from the U.S. and Canada were ultimately represented. And, the, and the, at one point, the protest camps were, were, had more than 10,000 visitors there. So you had these fairly dramatic images initially that took place on or near private property where the pipeline was being built. And, of course, uh, that, that was completely lawful for the project to be occurring there. But what the, what the tribes were arguing was this was ancestral land and also treaty-protected land originally. You get into a lot of issues in Indian law where the law has changed over the years, but you go back to key moments. For, for the Lakota people, the Dakota people, and so on, uh, there was a, the Great Sioux Nation, as it was called. At one point, that whole part of the country was to be one large, very large Indian reservation. And through a series of forced land sessions, the boundaries that were established by a treaty were abrogated by the Congress. And so when, when, when tribal citizens from that part of the world see private land, what they remember is that, hey, that was guaranteed, guaranteed to us by the United States government forever, and then it was taken away. We still consider that to be our land. And then also they, they, they would claim a, a current and ongoing spiritual or cultural connection or both to that land uh, because of ancestors who lived there, uh, burials that are there, and, and so on. A, a, a lot of land features and so on might have, might have other significance. So, so the bottom line is that when you saw these images, it was not good for anybody. And then it really began to spin out of control because this was the amazing part of it all. In September, you, you had the litigation going on, but the court ruled, right? You may recall the district court, they ruled that the Army Corps had likely complied there was an, an injunction that had been sought by the, by the tribes, and they'd likely complied with all the federal statutory requirements to consult with the tribes, with, with the consultation I described earlier. On the same day in September that the judge ruled, the lawyers from the U.S. Department of Justice 
and their their client, the Army Corps of Engineers, left the courtroom and they put out a press release. And they issued a statement saying, well, even though we lost in court, we're going to stop the project anyway. We want to reconsider our earlier environmental decisions, including the environmental uh, analysis or EA that we did, and whether an environmental impact statement might be necessary. It was completely unprecedented in my career. I can't remember another time on a pipeline project where the lawyers lost in court, but then they went out and, and did a press conference and said, oh, by the way, we're going to stop the project anyway, even though the judge ruled to the contrary. And that's when Dakota Access proponents intervened and started to challenge these decisions. And, and generally speaking, the litigation since then has been back and forth, but, but the project proponents have consistently uh, prevailed on their claims. And so then it became much more of a political issue that then, then changed dramatically when President Trump on, on January 24th issued his uh, memorandum saying that, that the Army Corps needed to move forward uh, with, with uh, uh, deliberate speed. And that prompted the Army Corps uh, to, to then go ahead and say that they're going to approve the project by finally uh, granting that right-of-way. Okay. And I, I know Joe will have, has some questions about, um, you know, where we're going with the future here. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to – so with Dakota Access, is, is the legal – I guess the legal action, are we done with that, or do we still expect to see more coming out of that particular project? Well, we're not done with it yet. I mean, literally, even today, there was litigation going on. But, but, but fundamentally, I would say that the major legal issues seem to have been resolved. Um, the, 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 the permit – has has withstood the challenge uh, that was brought by the tri the tribes that 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 it was issued without adequate consultation. The issue of the right of way is now proceeding the same way. The tribes have, tribes and also environmental groups have been challenging the fact that an environmental impact statement was not done, that an EA was done instead. It was you know a less less rigorous or stringent process. That that litigation is not entirely played out, but 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 so far uh, the NGOs have not gained any traction on that. right now or planned for the near future, both in terms of crude oil uh, projects, expansions in the U.S., and then, then modifications uh, also from delivery in Canada, and then, then uh, natural gas projects that are taking place uh, you know, throughout the country. There are some big projects that are underway or that, are, that will soon be underway. President Trump has obviously made it a priority to, to stress uh, the, the need for, for more energy infrastructure. I could just tell you that, that wherever you go now, when you, whether, whether you deal with pipeline companies or tribes or both, as I do, you hear the same kinds of concerns from both sides. You hear, you hear concerns from tribes about not being adequately consulted and, and in a much more aggressive or assertive posture about wanting to challenge every project, not necessarily because of environmental reasons, but because they're concerned about their rights to consultation being protected. That's become really the cause that's even more overriding the environmental cause from the tribe standpoint. The environmental groups, of course, have their own agenda, and sometimes they link up with the tribes and sometimes they don't. So th that's kind of what we're seeing. The pipeline companies are very concerned. You, you now go to a session where you'd have one or two people talking about tribal issues 10 years ago, and now you get you know, 200, 300 people in a room, and everyone's talking about how do we budget for this? How do we convince our managers, you know, our supervisors, that this is something that needs to be part of the plan whenever you do a pro pipeline project? 
Can you talk about lessons learned from from DAPL? Could this have could this conflict have been avoided, or maybe the intensity um, toned down a little bit? And, and what does it mean going forward? Yes, that's a great question. It, it's hard to 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 Monday morning quarterback everything, so I, I don't mean to criticize any individual. I was the chief counsel on the Ruby Pipeline project, which went from Wyoming to Oregon and was a natural gas 54-inch uh, pipeline that was put into service in 2011. We had 43 tribes on that project. And during the course of that project, we did more than 900 reroutes in response to tribal concerns, 900. Most of them were micro reroutes. We were literally you know, routing around sometimes rock stack features that were deemed to be culturally significant by certain tribes. So you might, you might you know, bend a pipe around six, seven, eight feet, literally. That was where a lot of the the cost and 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 the and the modifications occurred. You know those those modifications you know cost several million dollars. But you know we we estimated at the end of the project because we avoided work stoppages that we'd save more than 250 million dollars by actually addressing the tribe's concerns about the routes. And in some cases we did some significant rerouting uh, in response to tribal concerns. I, I think that there was just not enough done by the proponents, frankly. Uh, when they shifted the route to anticipate that you can't put a pipeline within a half a mile of an Indian reservation through former treaty land and expect that you can muscle your way through. And that's the way it appeared, uh, I think, on the Internet, on TV. Um, in this day and age, you ought to consider the reputational impact of, of, of proceeding you know, in that manner. It's better to try to come up with some compromise. You will always have some opposition, but you, you err by assuming that tribes are going to be opposed to all energy projects. Dave Archambault is a great example of this, the chairman of Standing Rock. He's now become a national figure. I've known you know Chairman Archambault for many years. I knew him when he ran a truck stop in Cannonball, North Dakota. Uh, that was his business. I mean, the guy uh, was selling diesel fuel at his truck stop. He's not somebody who I view as anti-fossil fuel. But he's he's ended up now being someone who's often held up by uh, the environmental environmental movement as as a heroic figure. I think he's a good guy, but I, I don't think he's anti-fossil fuel. And and sometimes you just got to listen to the concerns. Some people will be against you, but a lot of people, you know, if they're consulted and listened to, they they will certainly be reasonable. Yeah, I definitely don't think I definitely think the future projects will not be the same. I think we definitely. It's gonna, it's gonna have a lasting effect. So, uh, well, Troy, I know you have to get going. I know you, you have some things you have to do. So, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Very interesting stuff. I think it really clears up the whole Dakota access issue for a lot of people. Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. And that was our conversation with Troy Ide, an attorney and expert in Native American tri tribal issues and land rights. Uh, he's with Greenberg Traurig in Denver, Colorado. Uh, there, there are some things there that I think people might not have really realized. I mean, what did you hear in that conversation? Yeah, Len, it was really fascinating to hear Troy's perspective. Um, and honestly, I completely agree with his conclusion that the, uh, with one of his conclusions, that the energy energy industry lost ground in the fight of our public perception here. Uh, trying to muscle a project forward comes with a price, and payment will come with the next project, and the next, and the next. Uh, there has been 
a lot of talk among the industry about how great it is to have an ally in the Oval Office. But, you know, in terms of public perception and on very emotional and controversial cases like Apple, having that ally in, in the White House doesn't change uh, that, that situation. And, and I don't believe it's going to make it necessarily even easier. In some ways, it might even make it harder. Um, we have talked about the uh, industry's inter- uh, perception issues before on this podcast back in Pittsburgh. And I'm going to predict that we're going to talk about it again at some right. point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but the industry, uh, in my opinion, would do well to rethink its approach to getting its message across to the public. You, you were talking about the API Super Bowl ad earlier. And um, I would encourage everyone to go onto the API website and onto uh, YouTube. The, it, it's not just that one 30-second Super Bowl ad. They have a number of ads put together that are very informative, I think very effective. It is an issue that we'll keep talking about, and I don't think we've seen the last of, of pipeline standoffs, and I don't think anybody anybody really expects that we have. So, yeah. With that in mind, uh, we'll... We'll leave it there for this episode, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. So for the next time, we will see you then.